Hey y'all, and we're back for another episode. <laughs> Welcome to Scholar Tea, where we are scholars giving you the tea. I am Cameron Carl. Shout out to the Batty Bro Sisses. And I'm Shauna. <laughs> and I can't with Cameron today. <laughs> we want to thank you all for the love um, from the launch of the podcast, for sharing the show, engaging with us on social media. You people are absolutely hilarious. Somebody said to me, oh, I didn't know that you had so much personality. Uh, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> the shade of it all, right? I was like, oh, okay, a little shady. Um, I was like, okay, okay. I got what you're putting down. I feel the shade. But no, this is a, I think this has been really fun. Yeah. And I think people have received it in a very positive way. People have given us some very positive feedback. Some people have written in some very constructive feedback. We are reading your messages. So please continue to engage with us. And in speaking of engagement, I know we just had this conversation last week about how Shauna doesn't use Twitter or doesn't know how to use Twitter or just <laughs> uses it to cuss out politicians. And so if you... Um, have any thoughts, I'd love to hear them on Facebook. Although I am going to make a more conscientious effort to log into Twitter. Yeah. I think you've been really covering like our Facebook engagement. Mm-hmm. I've been on like the Twitter. Like this morning, I got your 20 notifications <laughs> when you logged in. I logged in that one time. <laughs> <laughs> People are talking about, you're talking about them crack wings. Mm-hmm. Today we'll do a temp check where we're going to describe our mood through song. We're not going to sing. Cameron's glaring at me. <laughs> we're not singing. But what song describes your mood today? I need a second. You go ahead. Okay. I have been playing this one on repeat, actually, almost to every meeting that I go to at this point. I can't even say I I play it on repeat once a day. I play it on repeat at least once an hour. It's Janelle Monae's Django Jane. I love this song. I mean, like, I love the visuals. I love the lyrics. I am craving some kind of hook. There's mm-hmm. no hook that I can sing to, but that's okay. Like, I can dismiss that because it's Janelle Monae. Mm. I'm feeling Django-ish. Yeah. So on the way, this isn't my mood, but it was trying to get me in the mood to do a podcast mm-hmm. with energy. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, Beaconhead. Beaconhead? What is Beaconhead? that? It's Cardi B. Oh. Like, it's real ratchet. Like, it goes hard in the car with the sound system. Like, it was really getting me in the mood to start my day. Can I say something controversial? Go ahead. I don't like the album. Ah! (laughs) this is why i like cardi i was really trying i was trying i listened to it on a road trip i'm sorry did i just mess up your mood go ahead (laughs) explain yourself (laughs) i listened to the whole album on a road trip and the songs that i responded to the most were the ones where she actually had someone featured Okay, I can see that. So I I realized in that moment, I wasn't responding to her music. I was responding to the work of the others. Okay, okay. And and so, no, in that respect, I like her a lot. Like, I love this woman. And I really so much want to love every single track that she made. But I don't. Beaconhead and Moneybag. I just quit. It got beat. Like, she has bankers. She has, like, the beats alone. You didn't like the beats? Some of them reminded me of these old quick thrown together cheap tracks really Mm -hmm. oh my gosh they did i'm really taken back by this they felt some of them felt rushed to me i thought they felt overproduced no i just felt like they were thrown together some of those beats really i did oh my goodness america you can fight me ah these are summer bangers i don't think so i can't agree i won't be banging them 
I'll go back to that other album first. And then she wait. had another album. It's her first album. Oh, she has a few on Spotify. Oh, those are mixtapes, girl. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I consider those albums. I like her mixtapes. Okay. Well, Beacon, Beacon Head is one. The other one is, I've been playing this over. I don't know if I'm in a mood, but I've been playing. Have you familiar with her? Oh, yeah. Focus. Oh. I've been playing it over and over. I don't know what mood I'm in, mm-hmm. but that that is probably my mood today. Mm. Can you focus on me? I'm focused. <laughs> All right. So what are we doing this episode? So you know we have to highlight our scholar of the week. We have scholars, plural, this week. Um, I'm really excited about our hot topic this week, not because someone passed away, but because of the the messiness that it brought. Um, And then um, we're going to have a wonderful interview with a dear friend to both of us. I'm so excited to hear from the future Dr. Jordan West. And we have a little tea to spill on the table. We want to talk about like what's problematic. We're going to frame it in like what's our pet peeves. So you're going to hear us vent a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then the secret sauce... That is Shauna Patterson Stevens. <laughs> Those damn jokes of the week. All right, let's get into it. Who's our scholars of the week this week? So first, we'd like to recognize Liana Hippolyte. Liana is a second-year PhD student and research assistant at the Pullius Center for Higher Education and the Center for Education, Identity, and Social Justice, working with Dr. Darnell Cole on topics related to college persistence, retention, and graduation. Liana is also interested in analyzing racial and economic integration, in addition to social and cultural capital as it relates to institutions of higher education. Prior to USC, Liana served as the Dean of College and Career Advising at Codman Academy Charter Public School in Boston, Massachusetts. She completed her bachelor's degree at Brandeis University, double majoring in psychology and sociology, and earned her master's degree in education policy and management at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Also, we have Stefan Santa Ramirez. Stefan is a PhD student and research assistant studying educational policy and evaluation with a specialization in higher education at Arizona State University. Stefan has worked professionally in higher education and multicultural affairs, residential life, and migrant student services. Stefan has also taught college courses on leadership and social justice issues at various institutions across the nation. Stefan's research agenda centers on campus racial climate, Latina OX, first generation student experiences and support systems, undocumented student experiences, and higher education policy. Stefan's work and scholarship is guided by his identity of being a scholar activist. His approach to scholarship centers on ensuring liberation for marginalized populations. Please make sure you reach out to these wonderful scholars and students and make sure that you let them know that their work is appreciated. Continue to encourage them to persist. I think they're going to make a great contribution to the field. Liana and Stefan are really doing some important work, so I'm glad that we got to highlight what they're doing in these academic streets. All right, our hot topic this week. Um, So our former first lady, Barbara Bush, passed away and I think had a really nice service, was was honored, um, the Bush family, the past presidents, and the current wife of the person living in the White House all came together to honor um, the life of Miss Barbara Bush. But in these academic streets, it got real messy out here. And I was reading on the Twitter feed and... The headline was, after calling Barbara Bush an amazing racist, a professor taunts critics. I will never 
be fired. For context, in the hours after Barbara Bush died, there were people saying that the former First Lady's political views were problematic in some instances. You know, the matriarch of the Bush family supported some policies and made some statements that some would consider rooted in racism in the late 80s, early 90s. But a creative um, writing professor at California State University at Fresno had a blunt message in some tweets for the remembrances. The tweets read, Barbara Bush was a generous and smart and amazing racist who, along with her husband, raised a war criminal. Yikes. Um, In another tweet, the professor wrote, I am happy the witch is dead. Can't wait for the rest of her family to fall to their demise the way 1.5 million Iraqis have. Bye. Yikes. Gerard's words and others that she used as she argued with critics for hours during an overnight tweet storm sparked a backlash that would soon prompt the university to distance itself from her remarks. Gerard is now on leave from the university. Initial thoughts? (laughs) Okay. Can faculty of color get away with this? Yes and no. I... I have a lot. Give mm-hmm. me a second. I have a lot going in my head. The first thing I immediately thought about was the fact that I've actually been training students to understand what tenure actually means. Yeah. Um, and that it is not a shield, that you can be terminated from your position. The point of tenure is to make sure that academic freedom in the sense of being able to really dig deep and understand complex, complicated issues that can be sometimes taboo depending on societal values, they can be explored in the classroom without fear of retribution, right? Right. Um, That's what tenure actually is. It does not keep you safe if you're a sexual assaulter or harasser. It does not keep you safe if you spew hate It does not keep you safe if you do something that is not even necessarily high-level egregious. It's not necessarily a shield per se. And so um, understanding that as a person of color is a necessity. Mm -hmm. It's a necessity to make it through this thing we call the academia. Yeah, and so understanding that as a professor of color that either has tenure or maybe, I I believe she has tenure, she's an associate professor, but she's not full. I think one, that is very, it's a necessity for a variety of reasons to understand that you need to know what the dynamics of tenure and all that it brings actually means. And I think students need to understand that when they do feel like someone is not working in their best interest to the extent that they are denigrating them and and who they are in their identity, that's the thing I've been working on with students. Yeah. Um, The other thing I think about is, Just because they do it doesn't mean we can. Mm. It is. It's true. We've seen a lot of people in the last year lose their positions because of the things that they put on Twitter as underrepresented folks. Mm -hmm. And Twitter is the place their careers die there. But the argument is going to be that Twitter is a space that is not a part of my duties as a sign, right? It's a space where I can freely express myself, my opinions, offer my opinions on topics, on things, but people forget that it is archived, it's out there for the future. You could delete a tweet and it is in the Library of Congress forever and ever. (laughs) And I I still think that people need to remember that, you know, we're underrepresented folks and what goes for the goose is not good for the gander in our experience. And so if you're adding people that are colleagues, if your information is open to the public, even if you're not adding colleagues in particular, but they repost or retweet your things, I think you need to understand that there are people that do not want you to exist in the space that you've taken up. And so you need to remember that and recall that when you're writing things down out for public consumption, because no, it's not a part of your job and no, it's not fair, but we're not treated the same. And so we need to be mindful of that. 
But there's been people in student affairs that have lost jobs for their opinion, and we've rallied behind them. And that kind of contradicts, I think, what I'm hearing you say. We do rally behind them. I'm just saying that you need to be mindful of the systems that we work in, right? So I, I agree with sentiments that she uh-huh. she talked about in her tweet. I still think that, though, it's important to realize that while you may be completely right, it still doesn't mean that the system's not going to work to tear you down. I, I just hear my mother mm-hmm. in my head. What'd she say? Everything that comes in your head ain't meant for everybody to hear. Mm, that too. Everything you're thinking is not meant for a tweet. Or a picture of a sandwich either, for that matter. Like, I don't want to see your every day. But I digress. I just think, yes, you just need to be mindful is all I'm saying. And hopefully you'll have a community behind you if something bad were to happen career-wise. But you just need to understand what it means to post things out there. In a group on Facebook, someone had screenshot some messages that were said in um, a space that was deemed to be safe and sent that screenshot of what that person said to their employer. Mm. And they heard about that. I think that's twisted. Like, that's not something that should be happening. But we just need to be aware that there are people out there. There are people out there with those intentions. They don't have our best intention at heart. And there are other people out there that have problems with people that look like us, that identify like us in the academy. And so they'll take whatever avenue they need to to remove us if necessary in their their minds. Zordon told y'all. What'd she say? All skin folk and kin folk. Right. You might be right, and you still you still might be wronged. So up next, we'll be interviewing the lovely doctor-to-be Jordan West. Jordan, welcome. Thank you. Thank you both. Full disclosure. Glad to be here. Full disclosure, Sean and I both love Jordan so much. Um, so we're <laughs> going to have some fun um, today. But first off, Jordan, like just kind of give us a rundown. Who are you? What are you about? What is your background? Share, share, share with the people. Hi, people. So my name is Jordan West. I use she, her, and hers pronouns. I currently work at Princeton University as a senior diversity and inclusion specialist. So that means I do anything that relates to people, identity, social justice, education, and my background. I identify as a scholar activist. I am somebody who is highly involved in higher education. I've worked at various institutions. And for me, the most important and salient thing is that I identify as a social justice educator. And so everything I've done, everything I continue to do really centers around the experiences of black identifying women in higher education and creating access to uh, higher education for folks who maybe have been marginalized, are still marginalized, and don't have space. Come on, scholar activist. (laughs) So what does social justice look like as an espoused value for organizations, in your opinion? Sure. Um, I think it's a good question because I feel like we all enter higher education in particular with different lens and language. And so for me, my background has always been that working in higher education is about justice. So if we're in fraternity and sorority life or we're in advising or we're in a multicultural affairs office, everything is done through the lens of justice. 
in my mind, justice is love. I think there's tons of quotes out there that capture that, um, that are cute to copy and paste when the time is right. But I think most importantly, it's the ways in which we embody that. Um, I think about um, my practice really coming to life. So I think about all those theories and frameworks and the language and the readings that we, I think, take in on a daily basis as scholars, being implemented and being put into our practice. So not something that we just kind of pick up when we want, but I think about the ways in which we uh, embody love through our work. And when I say that, I think about seats, stools, chairs, space. So who's at the table? Who's not at the table? Is there a table? Do we need to create another table? Uh, Do we need to flip the table? So what does that action look like? I also think about who are the most marginalized identities based on structures and systems. So when I think about queer, black, trans women, oftentimes those are the most silenced people at the table or not even given space to even know that there is a table that exists. And so when I think about practice and I think about social justice in a organization, to me, it's centering the people who have been prohibited the most through systems and structures to have access. And so this idea that if we create space for people who have those identities and have been prohibited, we think about those who are silenced and unsilenced them and the idea of making the invisible more visible. Uh, I think it's exhausting too. So when people are telling me that like, oh, this work is nothing, I'm like, this work is everything. It takes so much out of you mentally, physically, emotionally. For me, it's the ways in which I show up in my full self Uh, the idea that I am working always to be the most authentic as as much as possible at all times. And I'm also accountable to the practice I think I'm trying to embody. So when I mess up, I own that. When I think others are not doing their best and messing up, I try to hold them accountable. So to me, a lot of it is, is being able to say who's missing, who's included, and how do we really move through this work from a place of love, this idea that we can actually imagine something that's not there yet, and this idea of like possibility models. We can do something that we just haven't done yet. Jordan, thinking about some of the ways in which you have centered uh, marginalized populations, what techniques or strategies have you used to do that effectually? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think some of it is knowing the political landscape that you're operating in. So right now I'm at a highly selective elite institution. And so the political game is different here than it is maybe at some of the larger state institutions that have less resources and have a different student population. So I think about knowing the political landscape and being able to understand where the meetings happen, where the decisions get made. Oftentimes the decisions get made in meetings that are after or before the meeting that you think you're making a decision in. So some of it is understanding the political landscape to be able to figure out where you need to insert yourself. I also think about understanding who um, controls the money. So Toby Jenkins, um, her maiden name, she wrote an article in the Chronicle of Higher Education maybe two, three years ago that said, show me the money. And that article to me was a moment where I said, if higher education and if institutions are committed to this, their budget will say that. And so when I think about joining institutions, I always think about their budget line to um, support underrepresented, marginalized folks in higher education. And I think some strategic pieces that I try to bring into any institution I come to is the ways in which we create space. Um, So the physical space that we have and we hold and we look to make better for folks who are marginalized. I also think about creating space to have conversations. And I think we oftentimes jump to let's have the conversation, but we never spend time building skills to have a conversation about race or to have a conversation about intersectionality. I was like, hello, hi, I'm here. Um, And so I think for me, it's being able to actually begin to 
to think about what we're doing, what we need to be doing better, um, and not making assumptions that we all know how to do the work that it takes to be just in practice. So we might all have really, really good intentions, and we might have the sexy language to go along with it, but we may have never been put into a position where we're held accountable or where we continue to dig and dig deeper and do some self-work and discover some of that trauma that we've pushed to the side, understand what violence looks like in the academy. So I think some of it is naming it, having space to name it, having space to name it without consequence, I think is even more important. We oftentimes are afraid because we know that holding the identities that we have then maybe comes with just a consequence of just existing, but then also the consequence of speaking from that identity. Um, we are we are scrutinized at a different level. So I think, again, the political landscape, knowing where decisions get made, understanding the budget, creating space, and building skills to actually begin to do this work um, and not assuming that everybody enters college with racialized experience that they're able to speak about. And therefore, um, we shouldn't be able to expect them to understand how others are experiencing the world. So it, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of work and a lot of commitment, some sense of resilience. And again, back to that exhaustion, being able to be like, I'm exhausted right now. And um, what do I need to do? You've admitted that like, it's draining, right? So like, how do you take care of yourself so then you can mm -hmm. still show up as your full authentic self? For me, the people, I think it's all the people that I choose to surround myself with. So when I even think about like the idea of a village, I really take that to heart. So for me, even the question before about justice and practice, to me, centering love is so important. So I know for me, I need to be around people who I believe pour into me and are also open to me pouring into them. And I don't know that that always looks the same. It doesn't mean that what I do for you and what you do for me is exactly the same things, but there are specific people in my life wink wink both of y'all <laughs> who I think of all the time and I think of them in the ways of I wonder how they're doing to I wonder what I can give to them what do they need right now and then also being able to be like I can call some folks when I just feel like I have nothing else to give so I think about those types of relationships that are intentional I also think about the relationships that I no longer have on purpose mm -hmm. and so for me that's a really hard thing to do in your 30s to be able to say I'm about to dig into some of the hardest work that I think is out there. That's like people um, and systems and structures and things that are so much bigger than I am. And I need love and support to do that. And some people are actually so negative and so toxic in different ways that I just don't need to be around. I spent, I feel like the last two years really getting rid of what I feel is negative energy. It doesn't mean that there's no times where I'm probably in that slump or a negative space myself, but that's when I think about the people who um, will hold me accountable and be like, get out of that. Uh, let me help you because you need to get out of that soon. But I'm also just mindful of people who just permanently carry negative energy. Um, it doesn't mean they don't deserve love too. It just means that maybe I'm not the one to give it to them. Mm. Um, and so I think being really mindful of that I also think about travel, right? So I think about when I go to institutions or if I were thinking about a new contract with an institution or exploring like a career path, me and my friends always talk about how we negotiate within those spaces when we're doing this labor of love around justice to be able to say, I also need a vacation and that might be a week. <laughs> so I'm going to go travel and I'm going to go be with those people I've chosen to be with because sometimes I just need to not be so responsible for fixing the problems of an institution in that moment, I need to be just whole, as whole and messy myself as possible. So I think about people and places and travel. Um, and I think a lot of our scholarship tells us the importance of like getting away from sites of trauma. And to me, that's oftentimes higher education or the workplace. And so how do I intentionally remove myself knowing that I will return back to that space with hopes that I can make it better? Alert, alert. She's <laughs> dropping gems. <laughs> 
And thinking about spaces like that and thinking about your work, I'm sure there are several times when you turn corners and someone is not in agreement with what you're saying. So talk to us about a time when something you believed to be true or felt the most was never agreed upon by someone else. Sure. I I think it's a hard question because I think that there's like the day-to-day politics of an institution that oftentimes I just don't agree with. Like right now, for example, I know that in higher education, so beyond the institution I'm at, in higher education, I'm really torn, stuck. I don't know how to get out of feeling really sad by the ways in which we're talking about free speech and justice coexisting. Like, I don't know what it means to say that was free speech. And I know that this black girl is harmed and violated and experiencing violence in a classroom. Like, I don't know how to move in a space when the institution's policies, and that's probably most institutions of higher education, are saying free speech means you can say something hateful because we can't really make sense of hate speech. I don't know what to do with that. Mm -hmm. So I think about those moments where I am like, well, maybe free speech isn't so free for everyone either. And so I don't know how to hold those constitutional white supremacist values mixed with justice and works like the Combahee River Collective that says, if we do this for everybody, we can all potentially imagine ourselves more free. So I struggle in that regard. I also think about the ways in which I really, really, really try to work through some values that I believe in, like Sankofa, this idea that like there are people who sometimes just need that pull forward, that opportunity, that phone call. Um, how do I embody Sankofa, this idea of looking back, pulling forward, um, as opposed to like crabs in a barrel, which I think we oftentimes hear more of. I also think about about this idea of Ubuntu, the idea that because of you, I am, because of us, we are. Like, I don't think I exist here solely as myself. I think it's very deeply intertwined with the movements, the actions from other people around me. And so how do I take responsibility for the energy that I bring into spaces, knowing that I can have so much of an impact, positively, negatively, neutral on folks. And so I think about how much I believe in that and prioritize that as an action. And I think the ways in which I hear people talk about that, but I don't always see it. I oftentimes see within communities of color too, in higher education, we're all competing for the same good sometimes and how we really struggle then with one another. We struggle to uplift one another. So I feel like really focused on how I can be my best self for others and maybe model some of those ways that I try to embody as opposed to just imagining it existing. Love it. <laughs> but I think where you are and how you frame um, your understandings of justice and social justice is informed by something, right? So mm. what about your life experience has contributed to how you show up in social justice work? Sure. I, I mean, definitely home. So when I think of home, I think of it in ways that maybe feel like books that we read, like what is home? It's a family. It's a house. It's when I think all of these home, things. I think of a place. <laughs> <And> <laughs> <so>. <laughs> Cameron said he wasn't going to sing today. Here we are. Well, here we go. So so I think of home. I think of coming from a family that I was always told shouldn't exist. And so my mom is white. My dad is black. And the ways in which their cultural, ethnic, religious, spiritual backgrounds come together within their racial identities, I think it is so salient for me. Like, I can remember distinct conversations at the kitchen room table or in my bedroom or in the backyard or whatever, where we would be like, if we were with mommy, that wouldn't have happened. 
And that's a really clear experience for me growing up, this idea that, like, people told my parents they shouldn't exist together. We lost family members because they stopped talking to my mom or my dad because they didn't believe that they should marry one another. And so for me, when I think about that being the story that I always understood, it always made me say, but, like, why not? And I remember being doubted in high school or doubted among friend groups, asked to choose which race I wanted to be in that moment, and always being like, well, this is really who I am. So this idea that we've always been asked to choose and pick and not be whole, um, I think is really concerning to me. I've spent time working through a lot of that, so I think I'm able to articulate it. And I imagine those who haven't had the space to do that. And something else we often talk about is how do we keep ourselves within the world and of the world? around us in our communities while also navigating the academy. And so what Mm. techniques have you used to make sure that the materials and the knowledge that you create are accessible to the communities that Mm -hmm. you're rooted in? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that is so complicated at times because I think when we think about like publishing, you know, Cameron and I have actually had this conversation, like I've pulled articles out of places that were almost in like a final state of review because I was like, crap, I don't like this anymore. Like, I don't like how I sounded a year ago. I don't like what I thought a year ago. Or I don't think this is accessible. Or this article is telling me to change my theoretical framework for something about black feminist theory to something that's just not. Uh, No, I'm not doing that. (laughs) And so I think some of it has come at what maybe some might say is a loss, like when you think about a scholarly identity around publishing. And I think I've had to become okay with that and build relationships with colleagues like Cameron, like you, like folks who are willing to be like, girl, this is how you can navigate this space differently. I remember doing the Women's Writers Workshop at ACP. PA a few years ago, and DL was one of the faculty, and DL and Rosie Perez were both um, in these faculty roles to build us as scholars, and DL said, sometimes you have to decide where your work goes and where your work doesn't go. If you're unwilling to change your language, you might not get accepted in certain places. And that's okay if you feel like you've maintained your integrity and your values as a scholar. And so for me, I've held deeply onto that idea. Some could say like, girl, you need to start figuring it out though (laughs) and start publishing in ways where you maybe do compromise some of your language. I'm just not there yet. And I think that I've had faculty members, like my current um, dissertation chair, Marcel Haddix, is like, girl, you need to say this. Like, why do you have certain men cited in your work when either they're problematic or when they are actually just not in line with Black feminist theory? Like, what does that mean to compromise in some ways the voices of participants or the narratives and stories you're telling? So I think some of it has been being surrounded by Black feminist scholars who are saying like, nope, it's okay to not have him in there. Mm -hmm. He doesn't need the credit for this work. Mm -hmm. Um, There are plenty of Black women doing this work or probably did it years ago, right? So Mm -hmm. I think some of it has been surrounding myself with folks who I think are authentic scholars who are willing to say, I will take the L on either being published or I will take the L on being liked by all the black men or other men or other women in this field because I didn't cite them. Okay, that's fine. That's actually okay. And so I think some of it has been centered around like coming into that identity as a scholar. I think the other piece for me is, I think for me, it's like being able to have folks who hold me really accountable to the work that I'm doing. So if you dare claim yourself to be a black feminist scholar, Jordan, 
how dare you not then <laughs> do mm-hmm. certain things? And so I think for me, it's also been not only like, who do you include and not include? And how do you say this? And what do you do? Um, but it's also like, don't even speak that you are this scholar until you have, right, included this type of stuff or made sense of this or complicated that. So I think some of it is just being able to, like I said, surround myself with folks who um, hold me accountable, tell me when (laughs) that's just not okay, who affirm me. And I also think people who are willing to give me more than I know right now. I can think of a recent conversation with one of my committee members who was like, I need you to go read this before you go further, because I think it will give you a new perspective. Also finding myself in literature beyond the, what I would say, like seminal articles of higher education. Jordan, just love you. Cameron, (laughs) (laughs) I love you too. (laughs) So we're winding down our time with you. And one of the last things that we like to do with our guest is play the speed round. Are you willing to play with us? I'm willing to play. Oh, gosh. Okay. No mm-hmm. hesitation. No hesitation. The rules are the first thing that pops in your mind, that's what you go with. Okay. All right. You ready? I'm ready. Self-pump your gas or full service? Oh, full service. I'm from New Jersey. Come on. <laughs> Pumps or flats? Ah, a good pump. Club or lounge? Lounge. New York City or New Orleans? Both I'll say New Orleans because I no New New York. Black or pink? Pink. Beachella or the Formation Tour? Formation Tour because I was there. The Beachella is better. Oh, it was such a better performance. I know. I was like. (laughs) 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 Well, thank you again, Jordan, for taking time to speak with us today. We really appreciate the gems that you dropped. Yeah, I hope that people are taking notes. We should have warned them to get a notebook out. Mm, Maybe next time. But they can pause and rewind and go back. That's what's fun about a podcast. And then share it with their friends. (laughs) Love y'all. Love you too. Love you too. Bye. love her i do i love her dearly i do she's such a good friend she's such a good person she has such positive energy she always has good intentions if there's something going on she is going to name it confront it and that's what i just love about her thank you jordan my sis all right so now we're gonna spill some tea all right so like we said in the beginning people are really responding positively to the podcast and for those of you that have been with us since episode one wakanda forever Forever. uh, we had a conversation about greetings and salutations and respectability politics and we asked for your feedback and y'all were all about it we got some emails got some notes got some letters and one of them read colleagues thank you both for engaging the folks in this important conversation i am currently in a space where titles matter and individuals faculty staff and students are expected to, to be referring to you formally dr ms mrs mr etc however if i don't know your status i use your title and last name and or greetings <laughs> Hello. I think you have to pay attention to the context that you're in and ask folks directly how they would like to be addressed and or what's the campus culture around salutations. Thank you again for the conversation. Nell. 
Patrice um, writes, salutations. I'm making a quick comment on the salutations title discussion. I'm originally from the South. After seven years living in the Midwest, I moved back to my home state and it was a culture shock with how salutations are used at my institution. Emails from students and staff and registration forms often had gendered greetings and were more formal. So she kind of shows us a drop down box that has Dr. Ms. Mr. Mrs. Another nuance to mishaps with gender titles are non-Western names or more gender neutral names. So my name is Patrice, is feminine in the U.S. but is masculine in France. Parts of Canada and many African countries. Like Shauna, oops, Dr. Patterson Stevens, <laughs> if I'm unsure of a title, I will do a hello or dear first name, last name. Lastly, I really enjoy the first episode. Shauna, your voice has the melodic and calming quality that I'd perfect for radio and podcasting. I wish you both, Dr. Beatty and Dr. Patterson Stevens, much success. Shout out to Patrice French. Thank you, Patrice. So I have a couple thoughts. So the first one is like, okay, the context and understanding the campus culture and salutations and how they're used on campus. Yeah, but I'm still going to disrupt that. Just like I disrupt in the classroom, right? Right. The campus culture where I work is for you to call me Dr. Cameron Beatty. I'm a professor. Everyone else does that. No, I'm good. There's some power dynamics, some power structures that I want to disrupt in the classroom. So I'm okay with you calling me Cameron. Grad students, that comes across much easier. It has taken some time with my undergraduate students. Just because that's the culture and that's the context does not mean that it does not need to be disrupted. And it's in the context of like gendering salutations Mm -hmm. what do you think well I was thinking about the last four weeks (laughs) Mm -hmm. and how I've had to use doctor or just credentials in general not just mine like to try to push forward other folks voices Mm. you know and using your privilege right yeah it's been an irritation for me especially since I'm like everyone around me saying that they're liberal and then I have to feel like you just said doctor 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 Shauna right so you said Shauna to me and then called everyone else doctor Mm. in in the room Mm -hmm. and I feel like it was not just an oversight it was definitely something where folks were trying to minimize my existence in that space Mm -hmm. and so Yes, in the context of email, I still stand by the MX or just a bland salutation. So thanks, Nail and Patrice. Also unrelated to this particular conversation, but related to our previous conversations on passive aggressiveness and the necessity of code switching in higher education. Something I really liked in Patrice's photo was the post-it note attached to the bottom of her computer screen. It was a code book for the phrasing she utilizes to get her point across. So perhaps via email, in a way where her thoughts might actually be heard. When you'd like to say no, you might try, I am unable to do that. That's not going to work for me. Or thank you for thinking of me for this, but I was planning to spend time on XYZ. When you'd like to ask why, you might try, can you help me understand? Please explain. Or what led you to this decision? (laughs) I'd like to add a few phrases here that I often lead with, including, can you please clarify? Or I appreciate blah, blah, blah. However, I hate it when I have to phrase requests as questions or add please in my request, but I've received feedback that I can sound demanding or intimidating. And while it bothers me to have to reframe who I am and how I express myself, I'd rather spend time and energy on getting things accomplished rather than expending my energy on low-grade issues that rub against my principles. Mm -hmm. 
people. Don't forget to tweet us, like us on Facebook, you can write to us. Our Twitter is at scholar underscore T. Find us on Facebook, scholar T, like our page, or hit us up on that Gmail at scholar T, T E A, 2018 at gmail.com. Sips T. That's the review of T for the week. So we're going to talk about degrees on the wall. Hmm. Somebody wrote to us, I think they saw this on Facebook, that somebody said that, like, should you have your degree on your wall? Someone came to them and was like, hey, I don't have my degrees on your wall, so why are yours up there? So do you have your degrees on your wall in your office, and is it appropriate? First of all, I'm going to say this. I'm just going to say it. I think this is a stupid question. (laughs) But for some reason, someone asked it, so I need to honor the space in which they're coming from to ask the question. But give me your thoughts. Well, is it a stupid question or a stupid circumstance to find yourself in? Mm. Right? That's real. Like, it sounds like someone might have been coming for somebody, too. Mm. And knowing how people, I mean, just five seconds ago, we were talking about how people try to minimize our existence through speech. And so another example of that would be questioning why someone has their credentials on the wall. This is why you're my friend, because you get real deep. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) To verify why you should exist in that space. And so I think that's a stupid circumstance to find myself in, because I'd be like, you know, I think you should do what feels good for you if you want to flaunt it. You got it, flaunt it. And if you don't feel like it, like I'm a minimalist in terms of design. And so I have one up there. Me too. Yeah. And it's Florida State. I have fond memories. I have my PhD up there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, All the other ones, I can't even tell you where they are. So this is the reason why I don't have, I think they'll go up in my next office. Mm -hmm. But the reason why I do in my, (laughs) I feel comfortable having in my office is because I actually got the custom frame from the university as a graduation gift. And it looks really nice. And my undergrad and my master's degree, I've been saying I'm going to buy them. I haven't bought them yet, but I I need to do that for my next office. But like, I don't want to put them up. They're in tacky frames. Okay. They're in frames from Hobby Lobby. They're in my home office. They're up on the wall, but they're not in my work office. I really don't know where mine are. I do. (laughs) I do know mine was also a gift. I have a frame from some lovely students from Penn. They, they're the best. They made me cry. Of course, they always made me cry. That's a good gift. And it's beautiful. They got me the Florida State frame. They got me Florida State paraphernalia. It was Aww. so nice. And so I feel like if nothing else, it was a tribute to them to put it on the wall because they were with me through that process. And then they were very proud of me when I was able to attain my degree. Yeah. That is precious. Yeah. So I do have that on the wall. And most of the things that are in my office are gifts. They're not necessarily things that I've bought. So... The other thing is sometimes having on the wall as a reminder, Mm. right, for people entering that space. Like, I have credentials. Now, I do have a friend who is white and is is in a historically black sorority. And so she uses some of her credentials to signal that she's an ally without blatantly saying it. So that's something that might also be used in terms of putting up your degrees or putting up awards even or putting up membership certificates. I don't know if I need my alpha shingle on my wall in my office. You're not a white man. They have theirs up there? I don't know if I need, I don't know. Okay, so to add a bit more context, this person was in a predominantly white institution at the time. And so, but there's other signifier. Like, I don't need that. Like, to me, the shingle is very special. Like, I don't need that plastered on a wall, right? Like, there's other signifiers that I can provide in my office space of decor to put around that I don't need. I don't know if I need that on the so wall. So what would some examples of that be? I mean, my Greek letters, um, pictures with my fraternity brothers in yeah. in the frame. Yeah, it was just a plaque. It wasn't. Oh, I thought she meant like she has her DST member this date time oh, no, no, stamp. No, no. 
certificate it's on just the like wall. A nice uh, lacquer plaque. Oh, okay. No, that's different. Never yeah. mind. Disregard what I said. Okay. <laughs> so maybe some of it is also just a signaling, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, not just of education, but of allyship. Yeah. Of understanding that I want you to feel like you belong in this space. Like maybe that could also be some usages of those things, those symbols. Mm-hmm. And we all know symbols matter. So I do think that if someone's trying to check you for having those things on the wall, that's more reflective of that person Hello. than of you. Hello. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So let's move on to what's problematic. Ooh. So this week's problematic. It's kind of a hodgepodge, but it's not. So what's problematic is shit that gets on our nerves, right? Mm. Like our pet peeves is kind of what's problematic for us today. You want to tag team go, them? Yeah, we're going to yeah. tag team. Okay. Um, so for me, first thing that's problematic is people making assumptions about your friend circle. Like what? So people, they make assumptions about who you are based on who you decide to spend time with, which in some ways is fair, but also in some ways is not. Like that person is that individual person that makes their own decisions that has nothing to do with me. So I'm gonna use, I give a shout out to my friends that I travel with. Um, But people are making assumptions about our circle in the sense of how are we getting money to travel or counting our coins or counting the longevity of our friendship okay i have to admit i made a face just then because i'm like stay out of my pocket i mean and that's a pet peeve right people mm-hmm. counting coins like how can you afford this stay out of my pocket right worry about yours right what, what's your pet peeve i hate smacking while eating mm. or talking while eating or mm. shit smacking in general just gets on my fucking nerves um me too. It bothers me to no end. Uh, slurping. I don't know how you. I, I got slurp in trouble pizza. as a kid when I did. Like my mother did not like that. I didn't get in trouble, but it still it irks me. How do you slurp pizza? It's it's not soup. It's it's a material object. So I just it really it irks me. Smacking gum. A, a big pet peeve of mine is people that only talk about themselves in a conversation. And we well, might talk about this a little bit with narcissism, but when you're like checking in on a friend or you know that you know it's that friend that wants advice from you or that's checking in with you, but they never ask how you're doing. Mm-hmm. And to me, like as soon as that happens, like I'm over the conversation. They're soul suckers. Yeah. Yeah. That works me too. So when Cameron and I were building this list, I realized that I have a long list, so I had to cut it out. But that bothers me a lot. I hate, I hate repeating myself. I said it once. I might have said it twice for good measure. I hate it. I feel like I'm a very clear communicator. I write shit down for people. And when I take the time to write it down in particular, don't ask me again. That bothers me a lot. I'm in my feelings right now. I People are about to learn something about me. I dislike talking on the phone. I don't like to sit on the phone. I don't want to kiki with you on the phone. I just don't like talking on the phone. I've never liked it, actually. Especially when what we're talking about could be a text conversation. Mm. But, like, every now and like, I know, like, if I haven't talked to you in weeks and we're dear friends, like, I know we need to catch up. But, like, I have to schedule it to make sure that I have the energy to provide for you. That's awful. In order to, I know. Energy to provide to a friend? So, because it's a different energy giving something over tech. I don't like sitting on the... I really don't so like it. So you order food via email and online too, so you don't have to talk to Grub people. Grubhub, Uber Eats. <laughs> they work just fine. <laughs> I hate it when people interrupt me. It actually burns me up. Mm. I don't like it when people interrupt other people either because mm-hmm. I take communication very seriously. So I, I take a deep, in-depth approach to listening to what other people are saying to mm. me. 
And when you are interrupting me, then that demonstrates to me that, yes, you might be agreeing with me, but more often than not, you're just trying to blurt out the next thing that you have on your mind and Mm -hmm. you're not listening to what I'm saying. I apologize. I've done that a few times during the podcast recording. Mm. I've interrupted you. But actually, that didn't bother me as much because... It just felt different. I'm thinking more like meetings, for yeah, example. Yeah, yeah. I guess not necessarily like conversation where I'm just catching up with a friend. I'm thinking work stuff. Yeah. I don't like it in a work meeting. Mm-hmm. It doesn't bother me so much in a social interaction. Yeah. One of my last ones is, so this is about students. My pet peeve are students that are the first to talk, always talking, keep talking in class during the discussion and I did none of the reading and not prepare for class and think what they're saying is just genius. And I don't notice that they have no context and not done any of the reading. So what do you do? I stopped calling on them. I called one student out one time and it was a little too aggressive. And I was like, oh, I should not do that in a learning space again. There's no such thing as too aggressive. I know. I know. I know. But it was it was also a modeling, right? Because people are watching you, right? Mm-hmm. So you want to model, you know, how to handle situations. But like what that. does aggressive mean in the situation? Like, what did you do? I said, now can we attach that back to the reading? And then when they couldn't, I was like, well, let's have people that have done the reading engage in the conversation. That was a learning moment <laughs> for everyone that just heard that. that. I think that was an excellent example of how you do it. I don't think that. But was I shut that person down. They're now scared to talk. They better read and... that shit <laughs> next time. You gonna read that shit though. <laughs> And you're not going to say nothing unless you can, right? We talk about that all the time. No. No, I thought that was beautiful. Because you're taking up space. Yeah. Right? You're taking up a lot of space with a lot of hot air. Uh, I have two more. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> Mansplaining or whitesplaining a situation. Mm-hmm. That bothers the hell out of me. I interact with a mansplainer on a daily basis. And <laughs> oftentimes, though, I don't have love for the idea of whitesplaining a situation. And mm. so I feel like I'm, again... This comes back to communication and maybe it's all rooted in communication for me. I feel like what I said was pretty clear or that concept that that person shared was pretty clear. I don't need you to then repeat it because that person is, was a person of color. Yeah. No. And then the other one, we talked about this before. I hate passive aggressiveness. And I think the irony of it all is that I'm located in New England where that's their- It's it's their love language. That's their love language. (laughs) That's they spread that stuff on their mayonnaise sandwiches. And so I'm I am struggling. I'm not going to lie. I'm struggling on almost a daily basis at this point because people are so passive aggressive around here. Um, I was actually interviewed recently to talk about some issues that might be emerging from a particular department. And I had to explain, like, I'm having a hard time communicating on this campus because I'm not a passive aggressive communicator. Mm hmm. Well, that's what's been problematic for us. Um, Holler at us. What are your pet peeves? In the workplace, at home, in your friend circles, what just really grinds your gears? So are you ready for some jokes? Jokes of the week! (laughs) And if you don't know, the point of this is to try to get Cameron to laugh. Are you ready? Let's go. Stay gracious. What does a vegetarian zombie eat? I don't know what. Grains. Grains instead of brains. Okay. What do you call a factory that sells passable products? I don't know what. A satisfactory. (laughs) (laughs) I'm always real strong for the first one. (laughs) (laughs) What is Beethoven's favorite fruit? I don't know. A banana. (laughs) (laughs) That's corny. Patrick's laughing. (laughs) (laughs) A banana. Don't trust atoms. Huh? Don't 
trust, trust atoms. atoms. Okay. They make up everything. <laughs> <laughs> I was addicted to the hokey pokey, but I turned myself around. That's just bad. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> I copy pasted it laughing. I turned myself around. That's bad. <laughs> well, that's all I got, you hater. <laughs> That satisfactory one. That one's like a, <laughs> I like that one. <laughs> so those are our jokes of the week. If you have some jokes that you think are great that you would like for me to share, please email us. ScholarT2018 at gmail.com. So congratulations to Jackie Alexander for securing the director for student media position at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Congratulations. Congratulations. Also, congratulations to the following graduates. Jarrett Drury, Dorothy E. Ford, Tony Owens, Shonda Riley Steele, Sean Upshaw, Catherine Weedle, Tiffany Williams. Congratulations. Doctors. Octavio Paz once stated... Literature is the expression of a feeling of deprivation, a recourse against a sense of something missing. But the contrary is also true. Language is what makes us human. It is a recourse against the meaningless noise and silence of nature and history. This week, we encourage you to use your voice, your written expression, your art, your life to make an impact in this world. Your presence is more inspirational than you sometimes realize, but know that you're brightening up someone's life simply by shining your light. Please make space for self-expression this week. You're adding meaning to nature, to history. Have a good week.